Welcome back to another podcast of Beaten Not Broken. I'm your host, Leanne, and today we have a wonderful speaker by the name of Laura. Laura, I would like to personally thank you for taking the time to speak with me today and thank you for your willingness to share your story. Could you give the audience a quick introduction, including your name and your history of domestic violence abuse? Um, my name is Laura. Um, like many women, abuse began in childhood. Abused children become abused adults. Uh, so I grew up with it. It seemed normal, which is the really horrible part. I had a lot of siblings. Uh, like many abusers, my dad picked a favorite. And while he tr still treated the favorite really poorly, all the rest of us could still see that the favorite was treated better than we were, so we were always trying to get in his good graces so we could attain that treasured status. And that's a really messed up way to live as a kid. Yeah. Growing up like that, I, you think it's normal. Things like um, getting dragged out of your room by your hair because you walked away when he was screaming at you. Um, not getting to eat the supper that you cooked because you talked back. He wouldn't cook at all because that's what women do, like strict gender roles. Mm -hmm. So even as a young kid, seven and eight and nine, if mom was out for the night shopping or taking someone to the doctor or something, we were the ones having to cook and take care of him. So then... When you're an adult, you don't know what healthy looks like. It like it felt normal mm -hmm. that I was expected to put my abuser's needs before mine, that I was expected to be responsible for their emotions, their reactions to their emotions, everything that they did, because that's what I grew up with, even as a kid. So... It's, it's just a really messed up way to live, and you don't realize how deep in you are and how terrible it's become until something happens that opens your eyes. For me, it was m my child. I was in a vehicle with my abuser, and he was just screaming at me about something that I had no control over, and mm -hmm. that's normal but then he started screaming at her and it honestly felt like a switch flipped in my head and I was like this is not okay to be treating a child like this yeah and then I started realizing how bad things had gotten I always said like everyone has things that they tell themselves like if this ever happens I'll leave oh I'd never get into that situation but sometimes that situation happens and you're too mentally caught up in everything else to even recognize it. I was pregnant. I had a ton of stuff going on. Like I was still pulling 12 hour shifts trying to pay for medical care during my pregnancy because he refused to pay for it. And at that point, it's just so mentally and emotionally exhausting when he hit me for the first time, I didn't even recognize it. Like, it, it didn't register on a conscious level even because I was so busy surviving everything else that 
even though I had always told myself, if someone ever hits me, I'm leaving. It was just like, oh, it's just one more thing to survive. Mm. So I ended up with bruises while I was pregnant that I had to explain away to a sonogram tech. And it wasn't until after the pregnancy was over that my child was the one being screamed at, being emotionally hurt. I was like, wow, how did it even get this far? It was just insane. When you were referring to the abuse as a child, did your mother stay with your abuser throughout your whole childhood? Yes. And then how long were you with your partner that was abusing you? I was married to him almost five years, and we were together three before that. During your relationship, when did the abuse start? See, that's the hard part. You really can't pinpoint when it starts. There's a great quote about World War II that I do not remember correctly, but it talks about the steps of evil Mm -hmm. and how evil step is only a tiny bit worse than the step before it. The changes are so small, so incremental, that you don't realize what's happening until it's already happened. And by then you're in so deep, there's no good escape. And that's the way that abuse is. In the beginning, it was perfect. He was everything that I'd ever wanted. It was like a fairy tale. And then little by little, it turned into a nightmare. But every time things got worse, there was always something that I needed to fix to make it better. At every step of the way, it was something that I needed to do better. Oh, we're having troubles while we're dating? Well, let's get engaged. That'll make it better. I'm, I'm just worried. We need stability. Oh, we're having troubles while we're engaged? Well, once we're married and the stress of planning the wedding is over, then it'll be fine. Oh, we're married and things are rocky well if we have a kid then things will be better i just really want to be a dad he would tell me and so they always keep you focused on fixing another problem at Mm. least for me here's another problem here's another problem you need to fix this once we fix this everything will be a fairy tale again and since i had that fairy tale in the beginning the lie that i believed was that fairy tale could come back yeah A lot of women expressed a similar pattern of it being really positive in the beginning and being everything you want. And then somehow along the way that they didn't know when it became such a a dangerous or horrible situation and that it was such just subtle changes that led up to that. Little stuff, little by little by little, like in at first, like he would make supper and he would help clean the house. And then little by little, oh, he's too stressed to do that. Oh, work is just too tough. If you could just take this over for a little while while I get my life back on track. But once you've accepted that responsibility, they never take it back. They just keep piling more and more and more on. So when was the changing point for you when you left um, the relationship? When he screamed at my daughter was when I started seeing how very bad things had gotten. Mm-hmm. At that point, like we drove home and he stormed off with the threat that he might not be back. Yeah. But that was the threat he always used was leaving me. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I just thought, you know, maybe he shouldn't come back. And so I locked the door and I packed an emergency bag. Because at that point, I knew that if I left, 
it would not be safe to come back. Yeah. He had always told me that if someone left him, that was the end of it. So I packed an emergency bag and I stuck it in my car. And even then, like, I was planning ahead because if he came in and started a fight, I wanted to be able to grab my child and run. Yeah. And I wish that I had thought then to start gathering evidence, like start voice recording or something like that. But he he came back, and at that point, I was just trying to get him to give us each some space, maybe see if we could salvage it. Mm -hmm. I had tried for years to get us to go to marriage counseling, and so he agreed to stay with his parents for a week. And that we would go to marriage counseling and he wouldn't come back in the apartment. And we would try and figure this all out. But when I went to marriage counseling, that turned out to be kind of a trap too. Because he had spoken to the counselor before I even got there. His side of the story. And I learned later that marriage counseling in an abusive relationship is a horrible plan anyway. Because they're trained to look at both parties as part of the problem. So if we're equally responsible, that's victim blaming. Yeah. I tried to tell the therapist that I didn't feel safe, that he had weapons in the apartment, that he had hinted how very easy it would be to kill me. It, legally, it didn't count as a threat because... According to legal definitions, a death threat is if someone looks at you and says, I will specifically do this thing to you. Mm. But when looks in your eyes and says, do you know how easy it would be to kill someone? That, to me, says that they are saying it to me. Yeah. The therapist waved away all my fears and told me that we should move back in together. That is very interesting. That's not what I would have expected. Some other survivors also revealed that they had gone to marriage counseling and that was their way out. So the fact that the marriage counselor actually um, suggested that you stay in that situation is very interesting to me. I'm guessing it depends on who you see. But the counselor told me that nothing can be solved while we're apart. So we had to move back in together immediately. And that's when um, he called the police on me. Because I kept, I locked him out of the apartment. Mm-hmm. And so I moved in with a mutual friend. When I left the apartment, like, he was blocking my exit. He called the police on me because I was trying to keep him out of the apartment because I wouldn't give him his key back. Mm-hmm. They told me legally, since he was on the paperwork, I wasn't legally allowed to lock him out. The police let him back into my apartment. But at that point, I was just happy that the police showed up because he was physically barring me from exiting. Um, And he had grabbed our child Mm -hmm. and gone to the room that he used for his den where he keeps practically every weapon that martial artists even know of. So at that point, I was in fear for my life and her life. I, I couldn't leave the apartment. I couldn't leave her there. So when the police came to tell me that I had to let him in and I had to give him his key back, that was at least a way out. Mm -hmm. And so I left 
went to the friend's house, he called every single person that we know trying to figure out where I was. That person didn't answer the phone, but because they didn't answer, he guessed that's where I was. And so he drove by and saw my car. Mm -hmm. I tried to spend a month there. We talked to uh, church leaders. We tried the marriage counseling. I had plans to go and visit my family for a holiday. And he told me that I was not allowed to go if he didn't go. And so I went. And he called me. Mm-hmm. I was way there. And he called and demanded that I turn around and come back for him. And he was crying. And he was so sad. And he was, he sounded heartbroken. And I hung up on him. Not even two seconds later, he called back and was screaming at me in a towering rage. And I just thought, if your emotions change that swiftly, you're a liar. Yeah. It was all manipulation. They just want to flip that switch on, whichever they need to, to get you to come back and then always go back to the same behavior. Yeah. Well, I honestly believe that if I hadn't left when I did, I wouldn't be here. Because after I stayed with the friend and visited my family, I went to a domestic violence shelter mm-hmm. because no longer safe at the friend's house. That friend told me that I was not allowed to keep my abuser out, that he had a right to see our child. And so I wasn't allowed to lock the door against him. So I went to a, a domestic violence shelter and talking it through with the advocates there, I saw that the behaviors that he was exhibiting were things that they listed as very dangerous behaviors, things that are often shown immediately prior to a violent attack, because generally abusers will, they'll get scarier and scarier until they blow up, and then all of a sudden, oh, they're sorry, and everything's sweet and wonderful again, and they apologize, and there's a honeymoon period, and then there's building up again to something big. But if that honeymoon period disappears, that's a scary thing. It means that worse is coming. If the cycle speeds up, like instead of blowing up once every few months or blowing up every week, that indicates more danger. If they become more physical, if they exhibit behaviors they've not exhibited before, if they start doing things in front of people, he was exhibiting all of these behaviors and I didn't even know to be scared of them. Yeah, and that's something I really hope that these videos help people with is really educating them and bringing awareness because I think there's a lot of misconception around domestic violence and domestic violence survivors. There is. Well, people have this idea that if you're strong, you can't be hurt. So if, as a woman, you are successful or goals-oriented or you seem tough, then there can't be abuse in your life. And that's a lie. Yeah. Some of the strongest women I know have been through this. It takes a strong woman to make it through. I definitely agree with you on that one. People would assume that someone who experienced domestic violence is weak and I think that in fact they're actually very very strong to be able to one live through that and then also be able 
to find the strength within themselves to leave that situation. So, well, and also there's sort of a shaming that goes on if women choose not to leave, but people don't understand how very hard leaving actually is. When, when I left him, I lost almost all of my friends. Yeah. Because every, almost everyone I knew said, Oh, we're not taking sides in this. You're still both invited to everything. Mm. No, if, if he's invited, it is not safe for me to be there. You've chosen a side. There are, I think, three very close friends in the area that I kept when I left him. Mm-hmm. Those three stuck with me. Everyone else decided essentially to take his side because they chose not to take a side and that's choosing. Yeah, a lot of people make it seem that it's like, I just changed my mind and I make this choice and I'm going to leave. But there's so much at stake, not to only mention how mentally confused you are because of all of their manipulation, but also you are still emotionally attached to this person despite all the harm that they've done to you. And then you might be losing, like you said, your friends, you might be losing your job, you might be losing your home, you might only have the clothes that are on your back. So I think it's a much larger um, and harder decision than people make it appear as. That's why women stay. I'm still not free. I, I foolishly chose to have a child with this person. So legally, he has parenting time. A lie that we're told is that courts favor women, and that's not true. Statistically, more men win sole custody than women. I'm in an address confidentiality program. So my address is a secret. My legal address is a post office box. It's on my driver's license. Mm -hmm. In the custody proceedings, the judge ordered me to give up my address mm. because according to some state rule, if, you know, in a divorce proceeding, both parents get to know the address where the minor child is residing. So I've been through two rounds of courts court now because that went to appeals court. Judge ordered me to give up my address, which was illegal. Had yeah. to go to appeals court to fight that. It's been almost three years since I left. And court still isn't even finished. Yeah, it's horrible that there are not the necessary protections throughout all of our systems, whether that's like the police, the legal, um, the support for survivors after they leave, that it's all not coordinated. It's very, um, I don't know, dismay. And so it makes it very hard for survivors to get the things um, that they need after. Yeah. Well, I left with my stuff and my daughter, my child's things. The judge ordered that whatever was in our possession at the time of the divorce, we keep. Mm -hmm. So he moved back in with his parents. I had to start my life over with nothing. He moved into a furnished home and yeah. kept all of the dishes, all of the furniture, all of everything. 
but I got to start my life over from scratch with no money. And because I, because I didn't have solid proof of the abuse, the judge determined that my allegations of abuse were just an attempt to sway custody proceedings, and that showed an unwillingness to co-parent. And so he gave majority of parenting time to my abuser. I'm so sorry. That is I'm horrible. fighting that. But when I left him, he told me, he looked straight in my eyes and he said, I will make you lose your job and I will take your child. And he meant it. I'm still fighting and I will keep fighting. But it is so hard sometimes to keep on fighting. Yeah, you've been through battle after battle and... Even though you physically left the relationship, you're still tied to it in so many other ways. And I'm so sorry that you've had to experience really a lifetime of abuse and that you're still fighting. But I hope that soon the court dates and all of that are finished and you're able to have the justice and security that you need. I feel like in one way I am a bit more blessed than some survivors, many survivors that are still emotionally attached to their abuser. And emotionally, I'm not anymore. Mm -hmm. Legally, I'm still tied to him because of custody. But emotionally, as soon as I realized how bad things had gotten, it was like a switch flipped in my brain. And all the love that I had felt was gone because I realized the person that I fell in love with didn't exist. Yeah. He wasn't that person. That person was a beautiful mask that he wore. I fell in love with a mask. It's like falling in love with a TV character. That character doesn't exist. There's an actor underneath that character. Is there anything else you would like to add into this episode? I don't know. I just feel like people don't understand how very hard leaving is and how much strength it takes for how very long. Walking out the door is the easy part. The fights that come after it. I feel like I'm in for a lifetime of fighting and I'll do it because I have to, but I wish I had more help. Well, thank you for sharing your story today. Um, although it doesn't feel like it, it does make us one step closer to bringing education and awareness about domestic violence to a greater audience. And I just want to thank you for your bravery to share your story. And you have shown real strength, and I really admire that. Thank you for this project, helping shed light on this. And I just have one more question for you, which is, what are the next steps in your future? At this point, keep on keeping on. Uh, I have another round of court coming up. I'm not sure when. I'll have to, once that's through, that's what confirms, yes, they do have to abide by the Address Confidentiality Program. Mm -hmm. At that point, you have to file a motion to modify. There's a lot of court and lawyers in my future. Yeah. Making money for that and getting through that is the big fight and then 
I know you said that you um, had written a book. Do you want to share that with the audience? Uh, sure. The book is actually a book of poetry. It is not necessarily my story. Um, I was in a shelter for some time, and many of the women there gave me permission to use pieces of their stories. A lot of abusers and a lot of stories have similarities. So some of the poems might be about a specific person, but a lot of them are pieces of a lot of different stories. And the book is called Strong Women, The Poetry of Abuse. It is available on Amazon um, and on Kindle, written by Laura Hanna. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. That concludes today's episode of Beaten Not Broken.